You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. So I know there's a lot of those, but you know, only get us here. So anyhow, I don't know what else to say at the beginning of the show. I still don't know how to start these things. We're going to have to like get you a script of something clever and witty. I, I know, but yeah, it's got to, got to come up with some kind of tagline. Um, but that being said, um, yeah. Talk now and don't sound stupid. <laughs> That's basically what I try to do. It doesn't always work. But anyway, um, last we left, we were still in the the whole fall. We're dealing with the fallout from uh, Amnon and Tamar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amnon's dead by this point. Right. But we're still dealing with all of the craziness that is involved with that. Yeah. And with uh, Absalom and other brothers and whatnot. Well, and Joab had uh, recruited this wise woman from Tekoa to come and talk to David because he felt like he couldn't get his message across to David. And, uh, you know, this woman had spun this great tale, very reminiscent to Nathan, the prophet, when he confronted David. And, and she has used it as a way to kind of say, hey, this is the right thing to do with Absalom, because Absalom is a huge problem for David at this point, because politically, what does he do with this son who's a murderer? And we talked last week whether or not he really was a murderer or whether he had the right to kill Amnon because of what Amnon had done to Tamar, his sister. And so we left off in uh, verse 15, and uh, we're going to pick up there. But she's at, at this point, she has uh, chapter 14, verse 15, for those who may not remember what chapter we're in. But anyway, uh, she has spun her tail. Go ahead. I, I, I have a, a, just one note here that I think is interesting is, you know, most of this, most of these things have, you know, there's headings in here. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, those are, of course, added by the, uh, by the translators, by the people who decide how they're going to format it to try and make things a little easier. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to me that there's no heading for the woman of Tekoa. Right. The, the whole, at least in the ESV here, I don't know if it is in other, <laughs> other Bibles, but it, there's nothing like that. The The whole chapter is just Absalom returns to Jerusalem. Right, right. And we don't even get to that part until... <laughs> towards I the mean, end of the chapter. Towards the end of the chapter. Yeah. And the there's... And, you know, I, I, I just think there is an interesting editorial choice to, uh, to make there. Uh, there really is. And, you know, and it seems kind of like it's almost nitpicky and you don't like, you don't want to get too caught up in the politics and try to be hypercritical. But when you realize that this is kind of this consistent erasing of the woman in some of these uh, translations, and I'm not trying to be overly feminist here. I, I hate all the baggage that comes with that title. 
I, I am more interested in what the text says, but whenever you have other places in the ESV where every third paragraph gets that bold heading that tells you what you're looking for, and then this woman is just not even mentioned and she is a huge figure within the Jewish culture. You get into, you know, different writings of Midrash because she is a wise woman and wise people were honored in the Jewish culture. Right. Yeah. And she, and she center stage for a huge portion of this chapter. Very lengthy conversation that the King is having with a woman. And really, I think probably if we're going to go back and look at similar events, the, the next uh, comparable moment would be David with Abigail. And so, you know, Abigail, maybe because she's named, Maybe because, um, you know, she is a little more integral to the overall uh, hierarchy of the family. She does tend to get more of a spotlight, which is hilarious to me, given the fact that she basically throws herself at David. And yet she's celebrated. And I, I know a lot of people who, uh, oh, we wouldn't give our daughter a, a, a biblical name. And it's like, have you actually read the story? You know, she, the, her story is so questionable that people have questioned whether or not she actually murdered her husband so she could marry David or if God actually was the one who did it. So, you know, it, we're so just, I started to use a phrase our grandfather Underwood used. Uh, we're backwards. Let's just leave it there. We're backwards with the way we present women. And, right. you know, we, we shouldn't be that way because... The Bible, whenever the Bible writers bring in a woman, there is this this uh, commentary just on the fact that she's present because she's done something that is so out of the norm that society has recognized her. And so that's the reason why it's important that we maintain these women, not just as, you know, little extras. I mean, they're, they're not the Vanna Whites of the of the Bible. They are, they are actually pivotal players and they play pivotal roles within the larger narrative. And we need to respect that because God has respected them. So I'll get off my soapbox on that one because I, I don't, I don't want to overplay. Well, I, and I did, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to, yeah, I didn't mean to like go on a huge rant about that, but I just thought that was an interesting editorial choice because you're right. It is. Almost every second paragraph break mm -hmm. throughout all the rest of the book, something gets mentioned about what you're about to see. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and if my alter translation wasn't like literally holding up my uh, computer right now <laughs> to record, I would pull it out and see if he had a, a heading on there. But anyhow, <laughs> I don't want to mess with that. Uh, so yeah, I almost looked at the JPS, but I remember they don't have headings on just about anything. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, you know, you're supposed to know your Bible. What can I say? Now, um, she has gotten through her story, and uh, she she's basically let it be known that this is, story isn't just about her sons. It is about Absalom. It is about what David should be doing, and she kind of. Uh, kind of downplays and, and and does a little you know she's not too bold with it and this is one of the reasons why she's considered wise by the way is that she knows how to use her words to make her point and she knows how to do it in a way that gets david's attention 
but doesn't endanger her the same way it might have if she'd been just, I mean, in his face. Because a woman turning around to the king and saying, you're the man, like Nathan did, in this culture would not have gone over very well. And so, you know, she uses her feminine wiles. And this is the reason why she's considered a wise woman. You know, she's not being seductive. She's not being out of line. She's just, you know, I, I'm a woman and what else can I say? So in verse 15, she says, now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because people have made me afraid. So this is the why she's having to talk to him. She's afraid. And your servant thought, oh, I will speak to the king because the king will perform the request of his servant. So the people made me afraid, but I can count on the king to, to listen to me, to do what his servant requests. And, you know, she she's really good. She could be a politician. If she was alive today, you could expect her to run for president. Uh, she, she was just, she knows how to spin her story in a way to, to make it very effective. So verse 16, and she's still talking. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of the Lord. Now she returns to her story. So she's she's made her little point about Absalom. And now she's going to come back and she's going to make sure that David knows this is really about her. She wasn't there intentionally to cross lines. This is this really is about a problem that she has is how she's presenting it. And, you know, I, I only brought it up. I only brought up the thing about Absalom because, you know, I was afraid. But now that you've helped me, we, you know, I can just celebrate the fact you're a great king. But, you know, there's this this little subtle messaging um, in here that if Absalom is destroyed, then the heritage of God would be destroyed. And if you remember back in Deuteronomy 32, you know, uh, I always get mixed up that Jacob is his uh, portion and Israel is his heritage or it's the other way around. But it's that same word that we find in Deuteronomy 32. Now, this is going to be important because of what she says next. Verse 17, your servant thought the word of the Lord, my king, will set me at rest for my Lord. The king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. So remember, well, we should remember, these aren't just her words. Joab is the one who orchestrated everything about this encounter. He needed a wise woman who could, you know, do some improv on the spot and, and be able to respond to whatever David said. But Joab is the one who said, here's the main message you need to hear. And her words here are both in keeping with what we would expect from Joab, but also with the worldview that they live in. And like I said, this language, we've already seen how it was connected back to uh, Deuteronomy 32 with the heritage of God. And now we see it connected back with the angel of God. This is how she is describing David. Now, if you remember the kings of the other nations, they are the embodiment, they are the representatives, they are the descendant of the gods. Well, what's the other name for gods? That's Elohim. Whenever we talk about Elohim and being sons of God or sons of the Elohim, now we're talking angels, we're talking um, divine beings. And so these words really do get you know, you can plug them in different places and they're synonyms. So, you know, they, they all work to describe the same thing. And this is one of those times where a word study wouldn't necessarily help you find this passage if we're going to talk about the divine council worldview. 
but the themes will take you back here because now we, we can begin to understand why it's significant that she describes David both as a king and lord, but also as that angel of God. And by the way, the context there is kind of a little tricky. We don't know if she's actually saying the angel of the God of Israel or an angel of the gods. So we don't know what her worldview is in, and how much it reflects Judaism and how much it reflects just the Canaanite culture that she would have been exposed to. But because these are Joab's words, this is what Joab has to say about the situation. We're learning a lot about who Joab is as a person because we're finding out that there are certain behaviors in a king that he finds praiseworthy. And one of them is that he acts like an angel of God, that he acts like these other kings of other nations. Now, Scripture never tells us whether or not it's appropriate what, that David bring Absalom home. We're, we're not told. There's no critique implied or overt. We know that it doesn't work out, but there's a good possibility it doesn't work out, be, not because it's the wrong thing to do, but rather some of the things that David does when Absalom returns. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But she, this woman attributes a couple of things that are kind of interesting to David. Okay, so number one, he's like an angel of God. And uh, number two, he has the ability to discern between good and evil. Now, it's interesting that when she says to David that he can understand uh, good and evil, which is how the, the uh, ESV has it, she actually actually says shamak. And so shema, uh, the, the, the word that we find in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema Yitzrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that, that pivotal prayer of Judaism. And so she actually isn't saying that he understands it, but that he can hear good and evil and he can discern the, between the two and he can obey this ruling of what he should do based on that. It's not just, hmm. yeah, it's not just he knows the difference but he actually has the intention of doing what is good. And this is why he can hear her, his servant, and respond, because she's not presenting her own views on the matter. She's actually claiming to present what is good and evil. And so if she thinks what she's saying is good, then of course David needs to listen to her, and of course David needs to respond positively, because it's not about her. It's not about the messenger. It's about the, the quality and the character of the word she's saying. And she adds that, you know, the Lord be with him or the Lord will help him. Now, she makes this point um, even more emphatic in verse 20. <clears throat> and it adds another layer to her story. But first, we got to get through the uh, 18 and 19. So verse 18, then the king answered the woman, do not hide anything I ask you. Hide for me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. So, verse 19a the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? So, you know, David finally gets a clue. He figures out what's going on. He knows Joab's conspired with her. And I kind of suspect it's probably because he's heard these kinds of words from Joab before. He knows that Joab wants Absalom back. He's probably heard Joab explain to him, Hey, you are like an angel of God. You are a king. You have these divine rights. You need to do 
what you need to do. And so to hear these words come out of her mouth, he suddenly realizes, wait a minute, there's more going on here than meets the eye. So continuing with verse 19, the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the King, one cannot turn to the right, the right hand or to the left hand from anything that my Lord, the King has said. So you, I cannot tell a lie. You know, I, I, I can't even try to hide from you. No matter which way you turn, you're going to understand what the truth is. And it was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was him who put all these words in my mouth, uh, in the mouth of your servant. So she, she throws Joab under the bus. She's realized she's been caught. She's not going to take the heat for it. She can play. He made me do it. He's a mighty general. He's a mighty man in your army. He might as well be the second of command in all of Jerusalem. He told me to do this. So, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> I can't do anything else except for do what I was told. Again, mm-hmm. another reason she's a wise woman. So, verse 20. In order to change the course of things, your servant did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of the Lord know all, and to know all things on the earth. So, she's, she's really laying on the flattery thick. And that's where most commentators start. However, most commentators don't take into account the fact that she has, she's brought in that language from Deuteronomy 32. She, she's brought in these terms that are so theologically loaded when we look at the um, divine council worldview. And wisdom mm-hmm. is an attribute of God. And I, I should have pulled up the verse, but I didn't. But in Proverbs, it says that God created the earth. What does he use to, to create the earth? wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. So she's, she's really playing it up. And, you know, we need to remember within the story that Joab was, uh, sorry, Jonadab back with, um, Amnon, he was, uh, Amnon's counselor. He was wise. This woman's wise. And now David is wise because he knows all things. But the problem is he had failed to see through the plot at Amnon's house. When Amnon made the request, even when he asked for those heart-shaped dumplings that may have been some kind of love potion, whatever, David didn't even understand what was going on there. And it takes him quite a while to figure out who this woman is and what she's up to. So David's wisdom is dubious at best. But she, um, she really demonstrates the tension of what was going on within the royal courts at this time. Because as a king, David is certainly most definitely a representative of God. And so his job is to to reveal God's heart and intentions and purposes for the nation, for the people. He's supposed to model his behavior as one who is a representative of God. But he's not supposed to do it as a descendant of the God. He's not supposed to do it as one who was the product of this illicit union between divine beings and humanity. And so he really lives in this strange tension that it's kind of hard for us to put our our minds, uh, wrap our minds around because it's, it's being that representative of God because you were chosen and adopted and selected, but without sacrificing the humanity in doing so. And so this, this tension 
would have played a huge part in how people from Israel tried to grapple with that the reality. What does a king mean to us as a nation of the one true God and not being represented mm -hmm. by these, these other gods? But I also think, I was thinking a lot about this because, you know, it, it's not that unfamiliar. And you can get online and you can find Christians like this all over the place. And there are two extremes. And they're the ones who, oh, I'm a worthless, rotten human. And they never celebrate the fact that they have been chosen by God, that God loves them. He wants to redeem them. He wants to bring them into this holy family and this community of faith. And they just wallow in their abject sorrow and misery and feeling very pious about it. But they're also very mm -hmm. ineffective of being a witness to the world. Or you've got the people who, of course, God chose me. A and they feel like as the representative of God, they can do no wrong. They, they, they mm -hmm. don't have that balance. So that tension, even though we're seeing it really kind of for the first time in the Bible with David, we, we still feel that. And I, I think mm -hmm. that's a reality. I think we're we're always going to grapple with as human beings because how do we walk in confidence, but still with humility? And... Yeah. No, I, it, it makes sense what you're saying because I, I have seen that quite a bit where there's everything is just so terrible. And that, that goes to, I think I mentioned it a week or two ago, just that theology of you messed up so bad that, that Jesus had to die. And <laughs> For one, it's kind of narcissistic, oh, right? Um, but two, it, it really is. It, it's not helpful whenever you're putting together a, pi a picture of a loving God. Um, whenever you look at it, this ideas about the restoration of of the earth, it's not just oh, we have to. We, someone has to be punished because you messed up. It, it really, I mean. I don't know. When we were, I've said it before. It's worth repeating. When we reduce the gospel to that, it, it just it it makes it trivial and almost nonsensical. Um, so well, it's it's a lot more than than just that. And I think the, the the inability to reduce it into just this nice little formula, and you know, here's the the five points of uh, your condition or salvation or whatever you want to do it. You know, your one, two, three easy step hamburger helper Christianity, it, it forces us to recognize that this is about an ongoing relationship. And just like, you know, like my husband, he calls me when he leaves the job, job site. Why does he do that? Is it because somehow during those times he was gone to the job, he was no longer my husband? Absolutely not. He calls because in order for our relationship to function smoothly, which one of the key elements of that is keeping him fed because he turns into a grouch when he's not, he calls me so I can make sure that there's dinner ready, waiting for him when he gets home. Uh, and, you know, and it's not that at any point in time we stopped being in a relationship. It's just that by checking in and reaffirming those things that make a relationship run smoothly, we, we're 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 being real uh you know i if there's so many marriage books out there and it's really interesting to see how many of them go if you just do this 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 and this your marriage is going to be perfect well maybe if i was married to a perfect man uh but so far i haven't found one that actually works in real life not completely there might be some good suggestions but 
that's the thing with God's relationship with it, with us. Yes, he is perfect, but we're not. So he does check in. He makes those phone calls. We should be making those phone calls. He sends those reminders. And you, you, you have that give and take because it can't be boiled down to those easy steps. So uh, that's, that's like one of my big pet peeves. I hate it when there's like a formula because they don't work. <laughs> they just... Right. Right. And they, and they reduce the relationship to a transaction. Yes. And that's one of the things really, really frustrating. And I, you know, and <laughs> it's, it's funny because, I mean, I, I haven't read a ton of like marriage books, but it's really interesting the ones that I have. So often it makes everything, the Christian marriage books make everything sound very transactional. Mm -hmm. And I realize that, I, I guess like there are some times when if you're having a bad relationship, you have to like kind of set some guidelines and boundaries for things. But a lot of the books make it sound like it's supposed to be the norm that it's all <laughs> transactional to, to, you know, for whatever ends. But anyhow, yeah, if you, if you do this move on from that, but yeah. And, and, and I, I don't know, I, know, I guess I've kind of avoided having to do a lot of that stuff. I don't know, because I treat my wife like a person. I'm, I guess that is helpful. Well, you know, honestly, so. even in Christianity, and this is one of the things I find to be very interesting, because people, oh, Christianity's got so many rules. I can honestly say, and I'm not trying to brag, I'm, I'm just sharing my experience. The more I've learned about God as a person, the less the rules don't matter. I, I mean, I, 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 or the more the door. You mean the more yeah. the rules. I mean, yeah. like, seriously, because a lot of the things that would offend or hurt him, and, and by the way, when you choose to love someone, that means you allow yourself to be hurt by them. The things that might offend or hurt God, I don't even want to do. They have no appeal. So I don't have to worry about, oh, am I messing up? Am I going to do the wrong thing here? Uh, you know, and... It's a real easy picture to, let's take it out of the marriage analogy, let's look at kids. And when you've got a two or three-year-old and you're walking across the parking lot, you make them hold your hand. You make them follow that rule because it's for their own good. Now, you know, if your kid's 18 and you're still having to hold their hand to keep them safe in a parking lot, something's wrong. You know, they should have gained some mm -hmm. sense by then. And I think that's one of the ways that these human relationships teach us aspects of that relationship and now we are never going to completely outgrow the rules and we're never going to get to a point where we can't where we can just walk away from the scripture and what it says and just kind of live this kind of intuitive christian life that's not going to happen we need to be in his word right but there comes a point where you know <sighs> You aren't going to be tempted to steal because that's wrong. That's not honoring another person. You aren't going to be tempted to lie about someone because that's not honoring the image of God they were created in. And so it stops being about the rules and starts being about responding to the world and to God from a place of that's much purer than where I started out. Maybe not as pure as it needs right. to be. <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing is, you know, if, if it is really, you know, a, a relationship you know, the more time you spend with a person, the more you take on their characteristics. Um, the, you know, and so if you spend time in the word and you spend time in prayer, the, the more you become like mm -hmm. God. I mean, that's, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing. And, and so you don't, you no longer, I mean, 
you don't necessarily just need, you know, I don't go to, again, back to the marriage analogy, I don't go to my wife and say, I need a list of things that you do and don't like. <laughs> right. You know, I, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll say, hey, what are some things that you're interested in for, you know, upcoming, you know, gift exchanges or anything like that? You know, there, there's something specific she's after, but I don't go, oh, you know, I, I know my wife likes, you know, I, I, this, that, or, you know, the other. You know, I don't. I don't need her to give me a list. I've I've picked up on those things just from spending time with her. And that's how it should be. So okay, but now that we've like chased that rabbit down and killed it, um, <laughs> we'll go back to to Second Samuel. So th- the question when we read this this chapter is, we're presented with. Remember, I, I guess I had to kind of backtrack for people who might have slept since the last episode. This chapter mirrors the previous chapter with Amnon and Tamar, where we had all those connections that came together. And so you've got, you know, the son of uh, David's brother, Jonadab. You've got the son of David's sister, uh, Joab. You've got uh, Amnon and Tamar with the, um, with the clothing. Sorry, Tamar with the clothing. we got the woman clo- uh, with the clothing. Amnon pretended. This woman is pretending. So we, we had all those connections. And so in this story that we're talking about now in chapter 14, we have to ask, who is David in this story? Where, where does he fit in? Because is he, you know, Amnon who took what wasn't his? So is David going to overstep the bounds as the king? Or is he the kinsman redeemer that Absalom played for Tamar by taking him, taking her into his house? Is he the blood avenger that Absalom became? You know, is he the dubious wise man? I mean, Jonadab's wisdom is so dubious that most translators won't even say that he was a wise man. They just say he was crafty. But the word there in Hebrew is wisdom. Is he the the victim of wisdom? Like Tamar was the victim of wisdom. So we don't really know how David plays into this story at this point. And I, I really couldn't find one particular role that I could say, ah, this is David. Now, there's a good possibility that with Absalom's character, maybe that should have been David. Maybe David should have been the one who stepped up, but he obviously wasn't. And so I think the question of who he is from chapter 13 to chapter 14 really can only be answered as we move forward in the narrative, because we still have a lot of dealings with Absalom. And, uh, the other point we need to recognize is because this chapter, a lot of it is a reversal. One of the things we should notice is David is responding to this woman. Okay, she, she's a woman. She is from a distant town. She's clothed in cl- clothing that does not belong to her. Remember, she's pretending to be a mourner. That's what Joab told her to do. She is a stranger to him. And yet here he is, he's saying, oh, she's got this problem. She needs protected. She needs someone to keep her son from dying, keep this guy from trying to destroy her. I can give this royal decree. I can make this command in regards to her safety and security. And as the king, that's the right thing for me to do. But yet when the woman who he fathered, who lived in his house, who he clothed in clothing that was appropriate for her, is crying on the streets, lamenting what his son had done to his sister, you know, that where was he? 
Mm. And the thing is, we've forgotten about Tamar at this point. Most of the time, not only do we we don't read this in connection with what happened before, we we don't realize that these two chapters are so interwoven that we're being shown David's deficiency, not just as a king, but as a father. And that's going to play a huge role in what happens with Absalom next. And that's the problem here. David wasn't taking care of the woman he was supposed to take care of. If he would have taken care of Tamar, I think um, the story would have been completely different. But uh, as it is, things didn't play out so well. So at this point in the chapter, we have this shift. And we leave the woman behind. Joab's been identified as the instigator. So David's going to deal with him directly. So in verse 21, David says to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Now, notice the language here. Uh, Last week we talked about throughout this chapter, David is not called by name, not even once. He is the king. He's operating in the official royal capacity. Now Absalom is not the son. He is the young man. Alter sees this as a term of endearment. It's kind of affectionate. Uh, earlier in Samuel, whenever we, uh, the boy Samuel was being spoken about, he was called by the same word, the Snaar. I don't know. It can also have this idea of kind of a prince or official. It's not necessarily uh, just a boy or a young man. But either way, David isn't addressing Absalom as a prince. He's not addressing him as a warrior who's supposed to be respected. He's certainly not addressing him as the future king of Israel. And right now, Absalom is the heir apparent. So he's the one that we would expect to um, to have a lot of David's favor. So verse 22, and Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, in your sight, my lord, the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So it seems that Joab has, there's a real vested interest in bringing Absalom home. Uh, we don't know why at this point. Uh, there's a possibility that, you know, he just had a great affection for Absalom. I mean, Absalom would have been his cousin. They would have spent a good deal of time together. They were both in Hebron together uh, when Absalom was a boy. And, you know, when you grow up to fa- grow up with family that close by, a lot of times you, you do have those deep relationships. Um, we know that Joab is fiercely devoted for the, to the continuation of the, the Davidic monarchy. Uh, Absalom seems to be the one who can make that happen. Remember when Absalom attacked Amnon, all the other brothers scattered. None of them stood up and said, hey, this is the wrong thing to do, or even said it was the right thing to do. They just got on their donkeys and got out of Dodge. So um, Joab's motivation here is a little interesting, and I, I think there is some affection and some attachment, which will be very important when we get to chapter 18 and because it's going to give a real punch to the story that I think we sometimes miss. So um, verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. So probably indicates that Geshur and Israel, they're on friendly terms. I mean, after all, an enemy king's top-ranking war general 
does not waltz into enemy territory and take a guy home. That that just typically does not happen. It could be too um, that um, the the two kingdoms had some kind of understanding worked out about royal children, and because what we have to wonder about Absalom, and this is this is speculation. I don't think we can prove this from the text. He could have been in line for the throne of both kingdoms, Geshur and Israel. And this could have also played into Joab's desire to bring him back because he couldn't have Absalom joining uh, Geshur in any kind of military takeover of Israel. If he was going to be Torah observant mm-hmm. at all, he couldn't have Geshur just absorbed into Israel. There still needed to be that division. And so Joab may very well have just said, hey, we've got to get him out of there before his grandpa decides he can use him as a pawn against our country. And this is the smart thing to do politically. And it would also explain why when when Absalom returns to Jerusalem, David puts some very strict provisions on what Absalom can and cannot do. And so... I think we need to kind of consider whether or not that was a reality. And um, we're going to talk some more about that. Not a whole lot more, but a little bit. Because there's just hints that there's more to Absalom staying in Gesher than what we originally might have suspected. So, verse 24. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So Absalom's returned, but he's not restored. And this is going to be a key point. There's a difference between being brought back, being found, being saved, and being restored. And uh, Absalom really demonstrates this. So there's this hint that um, being brought into the king's presence or being housed by the king being provided for by the king isn't always a good thing remember back with Mephibosheth we had to ask that question is sitting at the king's table is that blessing and favor and honor or is it just a good way for David to keep tabs on a political threat and so a lot of how you read this is going to depend on um how we how we translate that those verses that earlier where David's heart went out for Absalom, that whether he was pining for Absalom or whether he was wanting to go out against Absalom. And we spent a good deal of time on that in the last episode. And um, the other interesting thing in this verse is the ESV says that Absalom should not come into the king's presence. Now the Hebrew says that, Absalom should not see the king's face. So this is really interesting because when we talk about not seeing someone's face in the Bible, immediately our thoughts go back to Moses on Sinai, where he's not allowed to see God's face. But um, Rabbi David Silva of Drisha, he actually points out that this could be... um, a connection back to, to Jacob and Esau, because when Jacob forgives Esau, or sorry, when Esau forgives Jacob, Jacob says to see Esau's faces like, 
is like seeing the face of God. So there's some really interesting connotations there that David is almost saying, I'm too godlike for, for Absalom to return to my presence. I can't have that, that violent murderer of his brother in my presence. He needs to stay away. So this isn't just, he can't be in my presence. It has deeper theological undertones to it whenever we see the real words that are there in the, in the Hebrew versus how the ESV decided to translate them, which I don't understand because it wasn't a hard translation. Now, <laughs> Bergen sees more connections with Esau, and we're going to talk about specifically what some of them are, but we're going to get there later. Um, then after you have this, this notation that he's returned, and again, this is another one of those breaks in the chapter, like we were talking. So you've got David talking to the woman, David talking to Joab, and now we're going to have this description of, uh, Absalom. And you would expect that would be how the chapter headings would be within there, but mm. they're not. So, um, uh, th the next few verses Give us this personal information uh, about uh, Absalom. So verse 25. Now in all of Israel, there was no one so, so much praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. This word here is uh, not, you know, usually in the past when we've talked about something being good or beautiful, we've used the word tov. The, mm -hmm. That's not this word. This word is yafeh. Which, uh, Yafe is uh, the word that's used to describe Sarah. It's the word used to describe Rachel. It's used to describe Joseph when he's in Egypt. <clears throat> and was it also the word used to describe Tamar? Tamar, <clears throat> yes. And David himself. And so you almost, anytime you have someone described this way, you're almost waiting for that other shoe to fall. You know that something horrible is going to happen to them. There is no blemish in him. Uh, he's a uh, moom. And this is, there's no physical defect. This is the word that we find not just of being physically whole and physically without blemish. It also talks about a moral quality. Specifically, mm -hmm. we find that in Deuteronomy 32.5. And that verse says they, and talk about Israel, have dealt corruptly with him, referring to God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished, their muam, and they are crooked and twisted generation. So this is um, a continuation driving back home that, that Deuteronomy 32 worldview, where who is the king? Where is the king of Israel within this overarching scheme? Is he one of the sons of God it, or is he something completely different? And if he is a son of God, how did he become a son of God? Because we know that David had parents. Well, then we got to go back to chapter seven of second Samuel, where God adopts David's family into his own. And we're right back right. to that tension discussion that we had earlier. And the, the writers are interesting because we already talked about with Bathsheba that the, this moral call on whether we, you know, the, the word is describing just the looks and the physical well-being or physical appearance or is it also describing you know something to do with this moral character or their makeup because with Bathsheba she's described as beautiful but the word there is tov so she was good as well as beautiful 
And so now we have this, this kind, same kind of blurring with uh, Absalom. Now, um, if it was just to tell us that he was beautiful, we already have that. The writer already made that clear in the previous phrase. And yet here, yet at the same time, we, we have this emphasis on the body from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's an absolute connection with this moral character, but I think there is supposed to be this hint. There's supposed to be this little undercurrent that if you're reading carefully, you're supposed to pick up on. And if you read it in Hebrew, you would have, where in English, not so much. But you've got to have some understanding, not just of what's being said in this verse. You've got to have this understanding of how the writer throughout the whole book blurs these lines intentionally to make you as a reader ask these important questions about each of the people that we encounter. Mm -hmm. So we also need to remember within this that we're reading Absalom's story in light of his father's story. David is good looking. He's Yaffe too. Uh, Absalom's a ruthless warrior, just like his father was. Uh, he has this ability to compel this extreme amount of loyalty from his men, just like David did. And we, the question really is, where do the similarities begin and end? Because there's elements of David that despite being the ruthless warrior, despite being the guy who will kill someone for bringing him the wrong message, there's still this level of... Um, <sighs> he's still somebody trustworthy and dependable with, with other things. And so we, we want to know what kind of mad man is Absalom going to be? That That's the question that the writer still wants us to be asking at this point, because he's building to something more. And he's just starting to give you the hints that you need to be paying attention for something more. So verse 26, and when he cut hit the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he cut it, and when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. So, okay, number one, it's funny to me that it specifies that it's the hair of his head. Uh, just that's, that's kind of an odd, uh, specific little detail. And, uh, but the, the most important question that everybody wants answered is exactly how much does this hair weigh? Okay. So it's about five pounds. He's got thick, hot, heavy hair in Israel, a country that's known for sand and dust and lots of heat and mm -hmm. humidity. And so it makes sense that yes, he would want to cut it. Now, in the Talmud, specifically Nazir uh, 4b, it claims that Absalom was a lifelong Nazarite. And it's from Absalom that we actually learn the principle or the idea that Nazarites were able to cut their hair when it got to be too heavy. Now, the text never specifically, the biblical text never claims that the Absalom is a Nazarite. But we do have some clues when I first heard this theory, I was kind of like, eh, there's no, he, he wasn't. Now I'm kind of on the fence. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But um, it, it does have some interesting implications if he was. And, and so, of course, when you've got this mention of hair and especially long hair on a man, we tend to think of Nazarites. And uh, now if you're Southern Baptist, Absalom's the reason that you don't grow your, your hair uh, long. 
But it, we got to remember, remember at this point in the Bible, there's no, there's no prohibition, not even an obscure or maybe a misguided um, prohibition. If he's not a Nazarite, then the, the other camp immediately is, oh, well, this is vanity. And, you know, there's, there's lots of things Absalom's going to be arrogant about. I get it. But you've got to remember in this culture, in this time, you didn't have barber clippers. Cutting hair, I, I mean, I would be interested to know exactly what tools they had for cutting hair. I mean, I, we've had some of those sheep shearing clippers and mm-hmm. keep those things away from me because they're going to pull. Uh, who, who would actually want to endure a haircut? It literally could be a painful experience on, at this point in time. So I don't know if vanity is really the reason. And honestly, if I was cutting off that much hair, I would probably want to weigh it and see how much it weighed. I mean, we we do it all the time. Go on Facebook and how often do your friends with long hair cut off their hair and they don't have necessarily the scales, but they've got the braid with the ruler showing how much hair they, they cut off. And do we go, oh, well, they're just being vain. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, do we condemn them for that? And, you know, sometimes when people in the Bible do stuff, it's because they're humans. And if we think that the Internet developed this this mindset that what we do is interesting and that's where it all began was with Instagram, we've lost our minds. Everybody thinks what they do is interesting or they wouldn't do it. (laughs) So anyway, um, I I don't I I don't know if we can attribute um, attribute vanity at this point. I think for other things, absolutely. And it could be that there is, um, you know, the two kind of might go in hand in hand. But of course, when we're talking long hair, we're talking Nazarite. We're already beginning to see some connections back to Samson. So we're kind of, we should be looking for what's going to happen next. We should be preparing ourselves. Bergen sees this connection of the hair actually taking us back to Esau, which we have reason for when we just referenced Esau as far as seeing uh, Jacob saying, seeing Esau's face was like seeing the face of God. Um, you know, Esau was a hairy guy. He put the goat skins on, uh, Jacob had to put the goat skins on his hands so that he could trick his father. Uh, Absalom is going to trick his father, just like es- uh, Jacob did, uh, pretending to be Esau. Bergen says Absalom's the favored son. I don't see Absalom being the favored son. Um, you know, Esau definitely was the favored son of Isaac. Mm-hmm. I, Esau sacrifices his birthright through foolish decisions, and obviously Absalom's going to to do the same. And Esau caused uh, Isaac grief, which Absalom's definitely going to cause David um, grief. I, I I see where Bergen's going. I don't know if I necessarily agree. I, I think some of it kind of depends on how you read those verses, particularly at the end of uh, verse uh, chapter 13 and the opening of chapter 14 on whether or not David was pining and longing for Absalom or whether he wanted to go out against um, Absalom. But either way, if you're familiar with the Torah and you're familiar with the story of Esau or you're familiar with the story of the judges, then, you know, there's some foreboding in this description. So verse 27, there was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. 
So this is the only time, I think this is interesting, the only time in the Bible that we have a list of children in which the sons are not named and the daughter is. So mm -hmm. in 2 Samuel 18, 18, uh, this is where we have a little bit of a problem because Absalom says he has no sons to keep his name in remembrance. Uh, his sons are never named in the scripture and it's possible that they died young. Uh, we, we aren't told. Uh, it's possible that he didn't believe that they were strong enough or, um, you know, powerful enough to um, actually make sure his legacy was continued. Josephus, when he wrote Antiquities, actually claims that when Absalom made that statement that the sons were very much alive, uh, but he decided to go ahead and uh, he was building a monument, build this monument to make sure that his name continued if his sons failed to, to do so. And yeah, it's kind of crazy. Now, Alter points out that the timeline, because it's traditionally kind of been assumed that uh, Absalom named his daughter Tamar after everything that happened in chapter 13. Alter points out the timeline doesn't work. So he actually named his daughter Tamar even before all of these events. So there's an indication that Tamar and Absalom were always close and that he always watched out for her. So in verse 28, we return to the narrative and it says, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence, without seeing the king's face. Uh, he, he's confined to Jerusalem. He, he's not allowed to go to Baal Hazor. We know he's got property up there. That's where his livestock is. That's where his sheep are. Um, he's not allowed to go into the royal, royal courts, and that's where everything's happening. That's where all the big plots and plans and you know the hopes for the future are being discussed. It's there at the royal court. So once again, he, he's returned, but he's not restored. And functionally, he really is every bit as crippled as Mephibosheth is at this point. And, you know, the only difference is Mephibosheth actually gets to be in the king's presence. He gets to eat at the king's table. So Mephibosheth is being treated better than Absalom is. And notice it's two years. He's in Jerusalem two years. And the reason why that's significant was because he waited two years from the time Amnon attacked Tamar to when he decided to kill Amnon. So this two years seems to be like the length of Absalom's fuse. Like once you hit the end of the two-year mark, <laughs> I'm going to deal with things. So, yeah, I have a feeling anybody who knew him knew, hey, yeah, he'll, he's patient until he isn't. This kind of sounds like our family trait. We're patient until we're not. <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. I'll take a lot, but don't push me over that final edge. So verse 29, then Absalom sent to Joab to send to the king, but Joab would not come to see him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. So this reveals how severe David's decree to Absalom was that he could not come into his presence. David, I mean, Absalom can't even send David a messenger uh, except through an intermediary. He, he can't even, you know, send a note to his father without recruiting someone that can make an appeal on his behalf. And there's one of two reasons here. One is either David's still very, very angry about the fact that Absalom's killed Amnon, which, you know, it could be. The second reason is that in receiving Absalom or even communicating with Absalom, 
that it, it could somehow be seen as David condoning what Absalom had done. And that's, that's a political problem. Now, if we believe that it's because talking to Absalom creates a political problem, then you have to wonder why did David put him in Jerusalem? I mean, he's got all of Israel. He could have put Amnon anywhere, but having him in Jerusalem where Amnon could, uh, you know, stir the political pot, so to speak, is kind of a questionable tactic because yes, he's keeping Amnon close, but we're going to realize this was the wrong thing to do very, very quickly. So you, the, the question of, is this David's hurt feeling or is this the political wise thing to do? Or, you know, it's David. It could be both. And because with David, it, it, there always is that question of when is he being the, the, the smart politician and when is he being authentic? So now that Joab's brought uh, Absalom back, Joab is even keeping his distance. And we, we aren't told why. We're kind of left to our own imaginations. Um, it could be, you know, he just knew that being too involved with Absalom would upset David. You know, and he doesn't want to do that. He's very respectful of David. We saw that when he captured Rabba. Um, yes, he kind of chided David for not being on the battlefield already, but he still waited for David to get there before he he conquered the city so that David got the, the glory. Um, maybe he was just happy. David, uh, Absalom's not in Gesher anymore. And so he's managed to separate Absalom from the king of Gesher. So he doesn't have to worry about that uh, plot. The one thing we do need to know and recognize is Joab's got his reasons because Joab's the kind of guy who doesn't do anything without a reason. He, he is a strategist. He's the guy who, mm -hmm. who, you know, plotted and conducted the siege on Rabbah. So it kind of sets us up for, for what might be happening next. Verse 30. Then he said to his servants, see Joab's field. This is Absalom talking. See Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go out and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set uh, the field on fire. So the last person to set a field on fire was Samson. And, you know, remember the story, he went to go see his wife, her dad had married her off to somebody else, and so he didn't get to see her, and he went and caught the foxes, and he sent it through the barley fields and through the orchard. So this is our next connection with Absalom and Samson. So you've got the hair, you've got the burning of the fields, and we've got to remember the burning of the fields happens for the same reason. Samson wasn't allowed to see his wife. Absalom isn't allowed to see his father. So these two family members that they should have been allowed access to, they aren't getting. And so their recourse is to burn the fields. And it's not even the fields of the person that they can't see or the person stopping them from seeing someone. It's, it's the intermediary. And the other connection that we have, which I forgot to mention, is they've both spent time in foreign countries and among foreigners. Samson with the Philistine, of course. Absalom in Gesher. So verse 31, then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, why have you set my field on fire? Okay, pretty standard question. Uh, according to the Torah, Exodus 22, 6, Absalom would have had to have reimbursed uh, Joab for the, the uh, field that he burned 
but Joab would have to meet with Absalom to collect it. So Bergen suggests that Absalom just decided, hey, you know, it's worth the cost. I'll pay the money if I can just get him here. Now, what I found um, interesting is Joab doesn't seem to have much of a reaction. It's just like, what? why did you do this? And you kind of get that, that, that feeling of, you know, whenever two buddies are hanging out and one of them does something stupid. Why did you do that? Of course you did it, but why? You know, I, mm -hmm. I totally expected you to do something this crazy, but again, why? So verse 32, Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come, come here that I may uh, send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. So Absalom makes this case. Hey, you weren't listening. I had to do something to get your attention. I was pretty certain this would work, so this is what we're going to do. And he also says, it was better for me to be at Gesher, which makes total sense. I mean, Grandpa's the king. So he would have had a certain level of prestige. He would have been included in the royal, royal courts, probably. Um, he probably could have um, been or might have been included in the line of succession for Gesher. Uh, you know, or maybe it's just the fact that he's at Grandpa's house. And we all know everything's better at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And so, you know, there's, there's this reasoning with, hey, if I had at least been there, I, I would have had some freedom. I could have continued my life. So no matter what was going on or what the level of uh, comfort in Gesher was, it's still better than being under house arrest in Jerusalem, knowing dad's across the street. You know, that's, that's pretty much what it um, boils down to. And also the fact that he is being shunned by his father actually would have opened him up to more ridicule from other people in Jerusalem. I mean, if the king is not talking to you, then I'm not going to talk to you. I don't want to get too close right. to you because, you know, some of your ick might rub off on me. And based on what the woman from Tekoa had said, there's a possibility that his life was even in danger in Jerusalem. There could have been someone who felt like it was their right to seek some kind of vengeance for Absalom killing Amnon. So the other thing he says, which I find to be very interesting, he says, if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom is telling you exactly how he sees his actions. He doesn't think he's guilty of anything so much so to the point he's willing to put his life on the line to prove it. But mm -hmm. he's putting David in a position where David's going to have to make a ruling. David's going to have to do something that he has been avoiding for a long time because if he absolves Absalom, if he accepts him back in with open arms, says everything's okay, he's saying Absalom did the right thing, but David did the wrong thing because he didn't step up on behalf of his daughter. If he condemns Absalom, now he's saying that what Amnon did was absolutely okay. There's no reason for David to condemn those actions. And David does not want to make this call about either one of his kids. He's just refusing to do it. So, right. Um, so we are almost, yeah, we're going to go ahead and finish this up. Um, verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him and summoned, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to see the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. 
So Absalom gets to come into the king's presence finally. Now, what I find to be very interesting about this is um, the king kisses Absalom. Not David kisses his son. We, the king is the one that Absalom meets. He doesn't see the face of the father. And because he doesn't see the face of the father, he's not restored to that position. He doesn't experience the warmth of the greeting he should have expected. Absalom actually becomes someone he hadn't been, someone that we hadn't really seen from him. We got to remember he started this story as a hero and he is going to move forward for him here and he's going to become villainous because he doesn't receive the the that that open-armed acceptance from his father and it's really interesting when you when you read this story and you you put it in light of the prodigal son david is not the dad scanning the horizons waiting for the lost son to come home he he's not the one who right. runs to to greet his father uh, greet his son and you david can't offer full-on forgiveness to absalom without convicting and condemning himself and you know when you offer forgiveness to someone that usually begins with some introspection. And especially if you're looking at the process of forgiveness with the intent to reconcile, you have to own your own stuff. And this is the reason mm -hmm. why David can't do this, because where did all of this begin? This began when David was walking on a roof and he saw Bathsheba and we can't forget that. And then of course it just follows through from there. So when, when Absalom doesn't get that, that, that acceptance, it sets order uh, things in motion that are just going to be tragic because it, and we aren't going to go into chapter 15. I just want to look at two little words after this. So chapter 15 says after Absalom receives the, this insincere official kiss, but not the kiss of the father. This is when Absalom begins to make these horrible decisions and mistakes. And, and that's where things began to fall apart within the kingdom with what Absalom's going to do next. And so I, I just, I was really struck by that, that, that Absalom, his undoing is not seeing the face of the father. When he just sees the face of the mm. king, that's when things fall apart. But what would have changed? How much would have changed if at this point in time, David, who says nothing when Absalom comes into his presence, would have had a response similar to like what we saw with Psalm 51. If there would have been that outpouring of emotion, that ownership of what he'd done, the wrong he committed against his son, against his daughter, what would have, what would have changed in the history of Israel? So um, it's probably a good place to, to put a semicolon for the week. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good place to pause um, because we're about to get into some serious action. Yeah. I mean, things kind of, everything kind of breaks loose in the, the next section. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That There's a lot in there that I'm still trying to process because <laughs> there's a lot in there I've not seen before. Of course, it's been years since mm -hmm. I've been over this story. So I'm excited to see where it goes and what happens next and the conversation that comes out of it. So, um, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on Raven Creek SC. Um, Raven Creek SC, that's all on the social media handle. And then RavenCreekSC.com is the website. Um, come be part of it. Hit us up with questions, comments, 
Um, write us a review. Like and share if you do like mm-hmm. it. That would be great. It helps us uh, spread the word because we are <laughs> definitely wanting more people to, to be involved. And uh, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you want to have more people <laughs> know what the conversation's about and be part of there it? There you go. So I'm such a great salesperson. <laughs> it's because uh, we're talking anyway. about our stuff. You're so much better oh, when I you're know, talking yeah. about other people's stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I can represent other people so much better than I can myself. Um, but yeah, speaking of, hey, go check out Answers the Giant Questions uh, with Tim Stedman. Uh, and who else do we want to, I guess, uh, there's Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. There's Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza. And is that it? Is that all the shows? Tending Our Nets. Tending Our Nets. With Joshua Sherman. I, th- I was like, I swear there's another one. This is why I don't name them every week anymore. Well, um, hey, while we're we doing shout outs, we need to also point out our friend Craig Conaway has just started Church Loon's page. Uh, we've been sharing links on the Raven Creek page. He's not officially a part of the Raven Creek family, but he might as well be because we've known him forever. So check out. He's like a distant cousin, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, check out his stuff. I, I just. I'm really excited to see where he goes with that. I've got to to be a beta reader for a book that he has. So um, anyway, y'all guys, yeah, check that one out. So because we just Excellent. like good stuff, and Craig does good stuff. So yes, and yeah, like like Emily said, we've known Craig for over 20 years now. He's one of our our oldest friends that we still talk to. <laughs> and still and, talks uh, to us. <laughs> and still talks to us. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, yeah, go check out uh, Church Wounds on Facebook. And does he have the the website launched as well? I'm a bad friend. I don't know that information. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, we weren't really planning on plugging yeah. it, but uh, go check that out. And until then, uh, we'll see you on the internet. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.